Good morning and welcome to another New Energy Chinwag with Charlie Ratan and myself, John Massey. Uh, and today we're also joined by guest once again, which is Ema Gaffar of the University of Manchester. Now, just before we get started with the podcast, you'll notice that there are a few audio glitches along the way, so apologies for that. Everyone's obviously on the internet at home bashing the, the bandwidth, uh, but hopefully you'll still um, be able to follow what's going on. The podcast will start with Aimer just giving a, uh, an outline of what he's up to, the University of Manchester. As you'll hear, he's a, he's a very, very enthusiastic advocate of hydrogen as a technology for decarbonisation of energy going forwards. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy what he has to say. Thanks. Welcome to our latest Chinwag podcast. Uh, with us uh, today is Aimer Gaffar. He's uh, head of the Fuel Centre uh, the Manchester Fuel Cell Innovation Centre, based in the northwest of England, and uh, Dr. John Massey, who, uh, who uh, listeners uh, will know, uh, features regularly uh, regularly on our Chin like uh, podcast. And uh, perhaps we'd start with uh, with you, uh, Emma. Perhaps you'd like to tell us a little bit about the background, what the Manchester Fuel Cell Innovation Centre is, what the remit was, and uh, what it's up to at the moment. Okay. Okay. Um, so our um sort of push towards hydrogen and fuel cell technology started back in 2013. Um, and so as a, I work for Manchester Metropolitan University and now what we really looked at back then was how does hydrogen have a role to play within our own estate? So we were looking at um, consolidating a lot of different campuses and a lot of different sites all through to central Manchester. So we had sites all over the northwest which we're basically selling off when we're building new ones. And it was around looking at um, building an energy centre and we thought well let's try and do that within our science and engineering building and let's look at something that we haven't done before. So we looked at fuel cell technology and very quickly found out it was very expensive um, but then it did open up an opportunity for us not just as a university but as a region as well. So we approached the combined authority and a number of other different partners and said how about we set up as a partnership proposition because we think it can help develop a series of projects both for us as an academic institution and for the city region as well. <clears throat> so the way we kind of structured it is we set up a, we called it the Greater Manchester Hydrogen Partnership, and that was officially launched back in March 2013. And what we basically did was we set up groups like many other people have done alongside sort of key topic areas, energy, transport, and then sort of research and outreach, which was predominantly our remit. What that effectively did for us is it allowed us to place hydrogen and fuel cells firmly on the Greater Manchester strategy in three specific areas. One, that a research centre on hydrogen fuel cell technologies was required for the city region to prosper. And secondly, a future skills development programme um, starting very much at the school age was required. And thirdly, we would like to see a mixture of uh, fuel cell and hydrogen technologies be used within the energy infrastructure we have within the region. So if you fast track six years ahead, we were then successful in being awarded £1.8 million of European Regional Development Funding, which was then matched by the university, because we basically built the um, what is now the, the Fuel Cell Innovation Centre. And the way we did that is we looked at our own academic strengths. So we looked at the fact that where are we really strong in that would lend itself to fuel cells. So we're in Manchester. Manchester's very strong in the home of the, the advanced materials. We were very strong in electrochemistry, surface engineering, and then we thought we needed to recruit some hydrogen fuel cell specialists, which we've now done, and we've got about 23 to 25 um, 
academics working within the area of the fuel cell space. So we have a core team of about eight of us, but then there are different academics from across the university and across from you know the other partner universities in the region who can access the, the facility. And what they basically do is we look at fundamentally how do we uh, reduce the cost of creating and developing fuel cells. So our main focus is fuel cells, but as obviously as a consequence, we're looking at hydrogen um, as well. Um, so we have employed um, sort of academics who are looking at replacing the catalyst of um, platinum within fuel cells. So we're looking at applications of graphene or other 2D materials to bring down the platinum content or eradicate it completely. We're using different techniques such as 3D printing and screen printing to basically look at how do we manufacture the next generation of electrolyzers. So we're very much at the innovation sort of scale of thinking. It's not only ourselves, we uh, offer a program of support to SMEs who are not necessarily in the hydrogen fuel cell space, but almost because it keeps getting mentioned, are interested in seeing where it goes. So we probably have around, we've supported around 50 or 57 to date. Out of those, I'd say about 15 to 20 are actually in the hydrogen fuel cell space. The others are interested to see where this can lead to, especially because they work in low carbon environmental goods. So the fuel cell center was officially opened in September of 18. And since then, we've kind of been doing our own research as an academic institution. So we've been winning research council funding, which lends itself to you know, what the pillars of the industrial strategy this lends itself to. We've also been working with a number of these businesses who we're developing projects with. For example, we do a, we're doing a knowledge transfer partnership with an organization in the Orkney Islands where we're hoping that in three years time we will be able to produce and manufacture a electrolyzer at much lower cost because we're using screen printing techniques to do so. So that's kind of where the innovation angle comes from. So with our sort of roots very much in partnership, um, we thought what else can we kind of do? We're at that stage now where it's working well for us as an academic institution. We're doing the research, we're supporting the businesses. We're now um, taking it that next step further. So in December of 2019, we issued a draft hydrogen fuel cell strategy for the Greater Manchester region. And basically what that really shows is a series of recommendations where we've worked with partners like Caden, who are building the big pipeline between Liverpool and Manchester. We've, we're looking at recommendations like, okay, let's look and work with our district network operator, Fourth Electricity Northwest and Caden to see what is the potential to produce hydrogen from our electricity network? Where is their capacity to do so? Where is their capacity to produce hydrogen within Greater Manchester from the gas network? So we're also then part of um, the wider and larger proposition around hydrogen in the Northwest. So there's a Northwest hydrogen and energy cluster where the center is very much involved with and is one of the projects that equates to around three to four billion pounds of investment in the next five, 10 year period. What that cluster is really trying to do is become one of the UK's first low carbon industrial clusters by 2030. Now there's a series of these um, that are trying to be developed and it's very likely that will, they will all happen. It's just who can do it first. I think the Northwest one is a very, very viable proposition and it's got some fantastic projects and some fantastic sort of names attached to it. We as the Fuel Star Centre are um, involved by not only developing a UK potential supply chain for some of the larger industrial partners, we're also 
working and leading um, with their colleagues in Chester around a skills portfolio. So what we basically said is, is if this pipeline of infrastructure, so what we're really trying to do here with the hydrogen, hydrogen keeps getting mentioned, what do we really need to do? All right, we need some policy support. We need the skills piece. The skills piece we're kind of working on at school level, but then the skills piece needs to sort of take another angle in the fact that we've got to recognize the pipeline and infrastructure of projects that is being developed across, not only in the Northwest, but the UK. Now we're a university that develops around 36,000 students per year. University of Manchester is another one. So if you look at Manchester boundary alone, there's probably around 100,000 students from between ourselves, Salford and Manchester, probably more. But if you look at the wider Northwest, <clears throat> which the, um, the Northwest Hydrogen Energy Cluster is focused on, there are six university partners within that. If you add up all them students, there's quite a large amount who need to sort of know where are the jobs going to come from in the future. So if these pipeline of projects, so just, just for example, the high net project sites around 33,000 new jobs per year, or 33,000 jobs. Um, we have to develop going to develop from, and if there is a skills shortage going to appear, how do we sort of eradicate that? So we're doing that on three levels. We're working with both Manchester City Council by sitting on their subgroup for green skills, and that's very much focused around clean growth, where hydrogen fuel cells have a role to play. Both at combined authority level, we're doing the same sort of proposition. But within the Northwest Energy Cluster, what we're effectively doing is saying, okay, we're educators, so are the six other universities. We will all work together and we will look to do like a three-phased approach. Phase one is effectively where we will all uh, look at our current course portfolio and see, are there courses that we're doing that are out of date or don't lend themselves to a cleaner economy, cleaner, cleaner growth economy? And are they obsolete? So we need to kind of almost do that review process to see what kind of courses can we sort of develop in the future. Phase two would be we'd do a, a, like a gap analysis approach. And phase three, we'd actually go and develop those courses, but we'd do that as almost like a cohort of universities. Um, the cluster like that approach. Um, the industry are involved in the cluster like that approach. And what we're hoping is that the vice chancellors from each of the academic institutions all sign up to this sort of charter-based agreement which will then be supported by the Metro mayors because our agenda is the same. A skills is something that no one should really own. It's something that we should be developing because we've got graduates who are looking for their job when they want to effectively finish their university life and think, all right, where, what area am I going to work in? And I think by being involved in this space for the last sort of six, seven years of recognizing it's not all about the science. Science makes things work great. Engineering makes things work, but we need business models to be developed. You know, if hydrogen is going to be the next transport fuel, if you look at, you know, what our Prime Minister has said, 2035 stops the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles, sites to technologies, electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. At the moment, if I charge my electric vehicle, I'm not paying any VAT on the fuel that's being put into my vehicle. Again, if hydrogen has to have some kind of VAT element to, because something has to replace the duty of petrol and diesel vehicles. I mean, the amount of income that is derived from that is very substantial. And given the fact that we're in this crisis period now where, you know, government is supporting a lot of businesses and a lot of industry, we've got to sort of keep that sort of level of income up. And if we are moving towards decarbonisation, one thing that has sort of uh, 
sort of been developed over the last six, seven years is that real interest. And you've seen it yourself, you know, the hydrogen keeps getting mentioned. Hydrogen, there's two topics really. There's hydrogen by itself as potential of being blended into the gas networks um, and hydrogen as a transport fuel, but then there's hydrogen to do with fuel cells. So if we look at hydrogen, we always try and look at it as a mixture of sort of technologies and We've got, it's got to work in energy, it's got to work in transport, it's got to work in smart systems, and it's got to work in building environments. It's basically, it's a, it's a key, you can call it key emerging now, but if it effectively it will fit into energy or transport when the market matures to that level. So I think from our approach is very much around, we can't be siloed in our thinking, thinking, all right, all we're really focused on is the research. We're developing this hydrogen strategy for the region because we want the region to sort of develop a work plan around that strategy to say, okay, we will now uh, work with our district network operators. We will produce the potential of hydrogen production within our own region. And we're talking about a greater Manchester boundary, recognizing that there's a wider Northwest boundary. And if you want to take this one step further, there's a wider UK sort of base. So we talked about wind before. Wind, you know, the UK is probably one of the largest producers of, is it offshore or onshore wind? Well, but where did we actually develop that? When we're not, we don't, we don't really produce any. We can't. We're not really a leader in hydrogen wind sort of not would say production, but wind products. We effectively buy all that in. So as a UK organisation that is trying to develop UK supply chain of companies, we want to be a world leader in the hydrogen fuel cell space. And I think across the UK, one thing we've recognised is there's a lot of talented people and a lot of talented institutions that are actually working to develop this agenda, whether that's through, you know, like actually really pushing forward with projects such as hydrogen trains or, but what we still need is people to understand, you know, the role hydrogen has to play. It has that, it's so diverse, it can connect a lot of other things. And what we want it to really sort of do for the region is the most recognized one of those um, institutions that is developing everything. And it's a bit, it's quite a big ask by anyone, but you have to develop the policy standards, you have to develop the future employment workforce, you have to, but we always sort of saw this as, okay, if we're really serious about this, when is the market truly going to mature? So it's the kids that are in school today are probably going to work in this more than likely. So we need to sort of educate them sort of now, which is why the high school program was developed. So we, this, this isn't like an instant reaction by us to say we're doing this because hydrogen is being touted as the next future fuel. We started our journey six years ago. So we've been sort of developing projects for the last six years. And yes, we're sat in a four million pound research and innovation center now. More, we started with a toy car to say, look, this is a great idea. Um, let's look at the potential that this can sort of develop for us. So we're now we're supporting businesses and the businesses have the opportunity to come and use the two and a half million pounds worth of equipment that we have within the centre and develop products. You know, to give you a couple of examples, we've got companies working at a pure sort of scientific scale where they are developing graphene as a potential replacement catalyst for fuel cells. We've got organisations that are looking to develop a hydrogen boiler such as the likes of um, you know, Worcester Wash have developed a hydrogen ready boiler. You know, it, there is a idea where we are moving towards a more of a you know we'll, we'll call it a hydrogen economy it's how do i as a small to medium-sized enterprise benefit from it 
So the, the opportunities are endless because if you look at just if I sort of just look through our our sort of own development, we're looking at developing business models for aid businesses. We're looking at working with policymakers to set um, the future sort of transport duty fuel of hydrogen. We're looking at the psychological aspects of introducing hydrogen technology to the region. So if suddenly I say, um, you know, where where I live, there's a, a big sign that goes up saying a hydrogen refueling station about to pop up. What will be the impact of the public on that? Will it be a fracking type approach, given the fact that some people still perceive hydrogen as a dangerous gas? I think people have got to recognise that hydrogen is a combustible gas, but it's no more dangerous than probably what you've got in your pipe at home. That's debatable, but we're not here to sort of talk, and that's where the scientists that we've got working within the centre will help. I think that's a good sort of benefit of what we've got within our centre is we've got a number of our own academics working to support policy. So what we've done with them is they're not only doing their research, they are working with policymakers to say, let's look at the Northwest, let's look at let's look at let's look at predefined boundaries in the first instance, let's look at Greater Manchester, let's look at the wider Northwest, let's look at the Northern Powerhouse and okay. And then let's effectively look at globally, because who is really trying to be the world leader in hydrogen fuel cells? It's China. So what the way China is sort of trying to do that is investing billions in infrastructure. They're looking at changing um, policy standards. They're looking at, to give you an example, in March of 2019, they changed uh, a policy which basically said to any manufacturer of electric vehicles, Unless your vehicles can achieve a range of 250 miles or more, we're going to cut your subsidies by 67%. Which almost pushed the market towards hydrogen fuel cells. You could argue better batteries, yes, or hydrogen fuel cells. Now, in transport terms alone, I think I think electric vehicles are great. I used to have one and it they work fine. If I'm doing 40, 50, 60 miles per day and or even more, but then I can afford the downtime. But if I want to travel from here to Glasgow. I'd have to stop a couple of times to recharge my vehicle, at least once, um, depending on you know, the kilowatt level of my battery. If I've got a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, but I need that vehicle to be operated at all times, to give you a sort of a regional example, working with Great Manchester Police, now their sort of narrative is they need 17 million miles per year, which they need to decarbonize. Electric vehicles are great, but what do those vehicles always need to be? They always need to be on the road. So a fuel cell vehicle gives you that beautiful sort of pleasure of just refueling within 60 seconds. There's no need to plug in, it's still an electric vehicle and it's clean, but then there will be an argument around, okay, where is the hydrogen going to come from? So there are, the ideal scenario for that, I think we've kind of got it in front of us. And I think the whole of the UK needs to recognise that. Wind energy, we generate lots of, you know, we talked about wind before, we generate lots and lots of electricity through wind. But then if we look at curtailment, as one example, when how many turbines do we all, general public, um, mean all drive past and see those turbines stood still? Now, the subsidies are still being paid. We looked into this a little while ago, and I think it's circa 100, 120 million pounds a year that that equates to. That's the ideal time to run electrolyzers. It doesn't matter how you store energy, but you can store it in a big battery. But if you store it in a battery, you need a bigger and bigger and bigger battery. If you store it in hydrogen form, it's a lot more dense. You can store a lot more hydrogen to then be paired with fuel cells and use to develop electric as you require. So I think that's our approach is 
these technologies have to look at that. If I look at, you know, Greater Manchester's decarbonisation plans by 2038, what's going to be? Is there a golden goose answer? No, there isn't. It's about all how do all of these technologies work in an interconnected way. So we've got to look at what the potential of wind is, you know, uh, what potential of PV is, what potential of hydrogen is. And if we're looking at powering a building with a big fuel cell, we've got to recognise that that fuel cell won't be powered by hydrogen from day one. If there's an eventual shift towards more hydrogen being blended into the gas network, that fuel cell will be operated by natural gas, which still contains hydrogen. So if we go back to town gas days, there was an element of up to 50% blending in the gas network. We're almost sort of going back to our roots, I'd say. And I think the beauty of hydrogen is that it allows you to produce fuel at source. So for, for projects with the police, they can produce their own fuel if they do it, choose to do it through electrolysis. It's just about making the economics work and how we then get the infrastructure developed. So this sort of takes me back to sort of our conclusion is we have to be doing everything. We have to develop the skills. We have to sort of support the policy shifts. We have to do the research to almost develop a UK sort of leadership approach within the technology, which I think we can do. Um, and we've got a lot of industry supporting the, the sort of wider projects. And then it's around how do we develop the skills and the portfolio of skills we require a lot alongside different disciplines because we don't just need scientists, we need everyone. We need a number of people because this is really, if this is, if we all believe that this is turning into one of those economies, which it quite clearly is moving towards, um, we've got to be producing everyone. So I think that's probably enough. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say we should probably probably butt in at some point. Um, <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned the economics because um, obviously one of the issues is there's a lot of talk about hydrogen at the moment. But if we go to cars, for example, the contrary argument would be that they're very expensive. So uh, I think you can buy two at the moment, can't you? You can buy a Hyundai Nexo, is it, and a Toyota Mirai, <clears throat> and they're both about sixty-five thousand pounds. For something that would cost about thirty thousand, thirty-five thousand pounds as a as any other car. Um, so, from a fuel cell point of view, how quickly can the cost come down? What needs to happen for the cost to come down? Do you know this is it's quite an interesting one because if I look at let's take the Mirai as a, as a prime example. Mm. The Mirai was a if if you launch the first generation of something, or as an engineer, what you always tend to do, you over-engineer something. So the fuel cell within the Mirai has been over-engineered to point where it would probably pull a bus. So now, if you scale that down, you're almost instantly reducing the cost. The next generation of Mirai's is about to be released. Yeah, yeah. there's a second one. Um, the second one. Mm. And that's already come down in cost to around, the, the figure that's been sort of touted is about 45,000. That's the kind of level it's getting to. Now, if I take, you know, the first electric vehicle that was released, we'll take a Nissan Leaf as a prime example. What was the initial recommended retail price on that was around 40,000 when it was first released. They're now about 15. But do you see, I mean, the reason that obviously the battery side has come down so quickly is it's scaled up very quickly. So it's yeah. the kind of manufacturing. Do you, what do you see needs to happen to, for that to happen with the fuel cell side? I think. And, and, and sorry, just to, I guess, to follow up on that, is it, is it an economy of scale thing or are there some fundamental changes that need to happen? technologically in terms of materials and so on to reduce the costs? Do you know, I don't think there's that many, platinum works perfectly. If you want platinum works perfectly as a catalyst, it's just expensive. So that's what we're trying to do. And then, but then if, if 
more people are buying things, things become cheaper. That's that's mm. the way of the world. It has been for many, many years. Now it's about developing projects. So to give you a scenario of our region, we've got the likes of an oil and gas company. We'll call them Shell, for example. We're um, interested in installing hydrogen refueling infrastructure within the region. Even them, when the size and global scale that they operate at, won't install a refueling station unless there's a demand. So it's then about well, how do we develop the demand? The police example is perfect. You know, that's your ideal sort of partner to say, okay, we a fuel cell vehicle is probably the one that works for them because it decarbonizes their transport ambitions and it creates quite a large fleet of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles because it works. Yes, they are more expensive. But then I've got to now I'm looking at Greater Manchester, so I look at all of the fleet replacement programs that are in place today. So I know the waste collection vehicles are about are due to be replaced. There's a number of bus operators, depending on whichever way you look at devolution and whether we end up getting the buses and retain a, a London type business model. I don't know, that's you know the main decision. Um it's creating opportunity for hydrogen to play a role. So that's what we do uh, within our centre. We create that opportunity. So if we know there's an opportunity or someone is looking at a fleet replacement programme of waste collection vehicles, they are looking and their business model is telling them to look at mm. it. Yeah, or, I mean, one of the challenges with the <coughs> the fleet replacement is <coughs> it's if, if hydrogen is too late, then the fleets have been replaced because yeah. obviously with buses, there's exactly. an awful lot of electric bus replacement going on. So there's an element of if you miss that cycle, then you've got to wait till the next one. Completely agree. And that's but it's around why don't people take on board the technology? Because this is why our hydrogen fuel cell strategy was kind of quite relevant. And it's like if we, if we started, think about when we started our initial partnership was six years ago, why are we now writing a strategy? You know, because we built our center, that's been great. We could be selfish and say, okay, we've got what we needed. We've got sort of fuel cell innovation center, we're kind of happy plodding along, but not really because. Then you're trying, you're not building the trust with the company saying, all right, they're, all they're involved in is really, we're no different to any other research institution then. We have to be different because of the way we're funded. We've used public funding to help develop and build our facility. So you've almost got to sort of say, the role hydrogen fuel cell strategy plays within the region is almost defined by not the engineers and not the scientists, by the policymakers and those who will incentivize people to look at fleet replacement programs. So if I'm um, working in the Waste Disposal Authority, for example, and I'm looking at fleet replacement program of um, waste collection vehicles, I will go towards electrification today. Will I go towards hydrogen? I know about it. And only if there's some kind of level of policy shift or there's a recognition of the role hydrogen can play within my region. What's what our strategy will help to sort of formulate? Then what am I looking for? I'm looking at the cost my uh, organization gives me to procure a new vehicle. I'm then looking at the fundamental difference as you highlighted. Fuel cell is always going to be incrementally more. An electric vehicle, it's then can I get involved in projects where we do this with other city regions? And I think the city regions in the UK need to be applauded here because I think they are kind of working together. Liverpool, Manchester, level of hydrogen level of thinking and if we, we, we all got together which some of those are or we've got organizations that are really pushing the hydrogen agenda saying okay if you're going to procure an electric vehicle anyway but then there's a difference of say twenty thousand pounds per vehicle i'll give it to you 
because it lends itself to my business interests. Because my ultimate plan is to, for you to buy hydrogen off me for many, many years. There's projects, there's a lot of 50% funding out there even today. Mm. Now, it's around how do we, it's just about how do we structure those into projects. So if, if somebody's already got that base cost of procuring a new vehicle, they, they quite happily enough to put funding. Sometimes people don't get involved in projects because there's no one to support them to do so. So we know of projects that have sort of, there's always been an interest um, either through projects being released by the UK, so Department of Transport released calls, and we've tried to respond to those calls in the past as Greater Manchester, and they've always fallen down because we've done it too late. We've always gone in at the sort of the back end to say, yeah, this is a great idea, but then it's about, okay, which organisations can you go and get the commitment from that they would take on these vehicles if the whole project was kind of structured in a way which lent itself to them completely. That's what we need to kind of do, and that's what the strategy is. So if we start with a baseline of, Let's look at the potential of us within our region producing hydrogen, either from capacity in the grid, capacity in the gas network, and then also the potential from renewables. Let's start with that. We will then move on to recognising um, where is, if I have a great Manchester map in front of me, say, where are the ideal points to install refueling in, uh, infrastructure? Now, it's about return to fleet, return to, the, they would be your ideal sort of partner. So the airport, as, in, as another one who's shown a, a clear interest in the technology have a, around circa thousand vehicles that never leave the airport boundary they've got real bad air quality issues so it's then about attaching it to air quality considerations electric vehicles solve that to a degree but then you've got to look at electric has its limitations you still have to charge that vehicle and if everything was on charge at the same time you know the, the spike in the grid would be quite an interesting thing to see and also um I think this is one thing that some is if you add more and more batteries to develop more and more range to an electric vehicle, are the people who are building car parks today aware of that? This is something that we were just talking about, and we would call this a chain bag. If that adds weight, and all of these, say I'm building an 84 car park, and all of the vehicles within that car park are battery electric, they're all quite sizable in weight. Are they, have they considered that? in their calculations, it's it's really, I mean, what we're trying to get to is there's not an ideal answer here. There's, do we go to a subsidy-driven market? If we look at the whole PV market, what kick-started the PV market in the UK? It was subsidy. It was, in fact, you got a feed-in tariff of around 43.3 pence for every unit of electricity that you generated. The reality was most of the people were at work during the day and they only would save around 250 pounds per year from having PV on your roof. That payback on that alone would never have worked. But it only worked and the market kickstarted because there was a huge subsidy. But then there was a huge falling cost as more being manufactured. And then obviously government realized that this didn't marry up. The payback period was about never really sort of worked out. So it got scrapped. Electric vehicles were supported by subsidy. So you got like a 5,000 pound subsidy towards the cost of a new vehicle, which helped prove demand there was still an infrastructure argument. There's no uniformity in some of the electric vehicle uh, charging. As, as I found out as a user, when I drove my car from either from Manchester through to London, I needed one, two, three, at least three different types of cards to make the charging point work. Because they're all on different networks and they're all owned by different operators. Yeah, they're, cha they're changing the regulation on that to make it <coughs> interoperability. Which is, really, yeah. which is fantastic. Which is, but I think from a passenger vehicle, you know, a lot of emissions come from passenger vehicles. 
Electric vehicles work perfectly fine, unless you're, you're a, a, an example like the police or you need that instant refuel capability. But then if you're moving things of scale, I think it makes a lot more sense. So if I'm talking waste collection vehicles or I'm talking buses, hydrogen probably does make a lot more sense there. So it's about petrol and diesel. It, are they competing technologies? I don't see them as competing technologies. It's still electrification. Electricity, yeah. no matter how you produce it. It's just a form of electrons. Yeah, I mean, they're both. We did, we did, John and I did a, a podcast on which we, I think we came to similar uh, conclusions uh, about EV. I mean, you've already got petrol and diesel and you've got uh, electric and, and hydrogen. Coming back to some of the things that were uh, highlighted that are worth uh, reminding our listeners of is that um, from, from scratch, really, you've got um, a fuel cell innovation centre. And I seem to remember it being on the fifth floor of a building, I can imagine a few challenges getting it. <laughs> but also, you seem to, I think, I think if I heard you right, you said you've got 20 plus researchers working now. It's, it's an astonishing achievement from, from, from where you are, from taking that from a, an internal estate decision for the Metropolitan University and now almost being a trailblazer uh, for national and international policy, which is, you're way ahead of the curve uh, for, for this. Uh, I recall when I was studying at Prest at, uh, at Loughborough, there was a fuel cell centre there. I think it was run by British Gas, and I, I, don't, I don't know whether that's getting cracked back into life as 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 things. Academically, the UK is very good on this technology, and I think there's some fantastic research being done, and there has been done for many. We we just got to. You know, I am my own vice chancellor asked me, you know, what's our USP? What what are we good at? I think it's the fact that we are inclusive to SMEs. We are looking at the more innovation sort of angle. There's fundamentally there's experts in this field. If we talk about hydrogen as a topic or fuel cell as a topic, you know, I'm looking at the likes of Imperial, UCL. We've been leading the sort of fight for many, many years. We're finding our own space completely within the innovation angle and putting the innovation in we're looking at it as a, we're looking at the thing with, as a blank piece of paper and thinking, okay, we, we need to do the whole, the whole lot. We can't just be uh, doing pure blue skies research or we can't just be doing research. It's what we've got to be doing, doing everything we, we take with a view of being a very applied. So the whole recognition that our academics help to develop policy, fantastic for me. So our hydrogen fuel cell strategy was written by about 10 different people internally and sort of externally within the combined authority. Fantastic achievement. We've seconded people to the Northern Powerhouse Partnership because they needed to recognize the role hydrogen will play across the whole Northern Powerhouse. Some of our researchers are going to work there. Some of our researchers are working at sort of West. Hydrogen keeps getting mentioned. What is the technology that is sort of, how are you changing fuel cells? What sort of, um, how can you help us develop policy and national policy around this and we're, we're coming, but then we are they are scientists but they are scientists in different disciplines that lend themselves to fuel cell it's that's what works for us it's for it's for offshore wind uh, i've been uh, in offshore wind uh, many many years and john and i teach on it and we've seen uh, even in the last couple of years there were no things like the sector deals in the in the early stages of uh, these ideas and industrial strategies they've been consigned to the dustbin back in the uh, in the 80s, but they've been retrieved and they've been dusted down and uh, subsidies certainly help uh, wind uh, offshore in, in the UK when we had double rocks 
at, uh, at, at one time, but that has enabled something of a, of a real success story with the, the UK. All right, we might not make the gearboxes and the, and the nacelles, but we do make the towers and we do make other bits of, uh, of the kit. And it's leading to real regeneration of, of towns, Grimsby, Hull, Barrow. Yeah. All of these are real evidence of, yeah, it might cost a little bit of a start. It's not cheap. Certainly, uh, wind wasn't cheap. It should be because the fuel's free, but it wasn't cheap. But when you do scale up, you suddenly turn around and say, well, look, actually, we've got a world-leading business with export um, potential. And lo and behold, the sector deal, and the sector deal says, yeah, you've got the support. But in return, we want the local jobs. We, look, we want you to reach out to people you previously ignored, SMEs, uh, utilities that never used to bother teaching with them. Why would you Why would you deal with an SME who want to deal with people like ourselves, big big companies that are not going to yeah. uh, ha have issues, that kind of thing. So I can see there are examples of, of the same trajectory being applied very, very effectively in, in yeah. UK PLC, if you like. From a policy yeah. point of view, because um, we've mentioned, I mean, in some ways it's quite easy with... Um, electricity um, because the policy was very much aimed at the production side and then it fits into existing infrastructure and so on. Um, whereas hydrogen it's very much a kind of end-to-end -end supply chain that almost needs creating. Um, so where, when when you your people have kind of looked at policy and recommended on policy, where what kind of specific levers or specific mechanisms have they identified that are in the short term most crucial to get kick the start of this whole thing? If I'm just talking regional here, then it's about where is the hydrogen going to come from? That's what we always end up at. Mm. It's where, if, how do we structure projects? All right, the vehicles are available, great. The refueling, do we go with, you know, we can stick an electrolyzer there, but electrolyzer is And it's about, it doesn't make any economic sense to run unless there's a reason to do so. So that's why I think the work with the uh, electricity network operator is really important. If installing a large electrolyzer at some point within the grid helps balance the grid, great, they will do that as an innovation project. Mm. That's why the study with the DNOs is so important because that really shows to us what is the capacity for us as a region to produce hydrogen, um, whether it's you know grid electricity producing it or gas network-led hydrogen. Then it's got recognised. Look at what's happening here in the sort of wider northwest. How is that hydrogen going to sort of trickle into this sort of region? Then it's around. Okay, let's, as many other regions have done, and I think they've done them well. Is let's work with um, the combined authority. Let's work with TFGM and see. Okay, like how do we uh, produce a feasibility in line with some of the reference so we know what the capacity is of us as a region to produce hydrogen. Let's identify locations where we can actually install the infrastructure. Then it's about working with whoever owns and operates that land to say, how do we sort of develop this? Same thing happened with wind in, in, in a way. And then we need to sort of have a commitment regionally to say, how this is the level we will commit to. And this is, if I look at why is every single city or every single, um, not even just uh, in the UK, but nationally or globally looking at, because we've all got these different decarbonisation targets to hit. All of a sudden, where everyone you say, you know, why do why are people even going down the electrification route? Because it's you can buy a petrol car, you can buy a diesel car. They work, they work fine, they work completely fine. We're trying to clean up our act. We're, you know, where UK is very responsible for, especially in Manchester, for the industrial revolution. I think we're moving towards a new one, but it's just a cleaner one. I think we've got to recognise here that hydrogen has a role to play completely. If, if I look at 
how do we sort of define that role? It's not really up for us to define. It's to say, let's support the role all of the organisations that are sort of you know are in the geographical boundary of Greater Manchester, some of the national organisations. Let's work with them to sort of develop this. We can't do this as a standalone. If I'm saying, if I'm being selfish, we're cracking on with our, our research within our centre. We're doing working with businesses. That's probably enough in a way, but it's not because there's there's why there's a wider agenda to say we're all the responsibility for 2038 doesn't lie with the combined authority. It lies with everyone. So in line with that, it's about working with the combined authority, working with Transport for Greater Manchester, have almost a um, list of fleet replacement programs that would work on the transport angle, great, we will help and develop those and facilitate those projects. Then it's about working and uh, to develop finance mechanisms to install hydrogen and infrastructure within buildings. So even us as a um, sizable institution, all a, a large fuel cell unless it made sense economically. So we're, the way we're trying to do that is saying, all right, let's explore different models can we A, go and get some financial support through uh, a grant, or B, can we actually put it out to the market and say, all right, our interests are, we want to install a 400 kilowatt, so to say, fuel cell combined heat and power plant on our estate, but we don't want to pay for it. But what we are is a large uh, institution who probably spend around four to five million pounds a year on gas and electric. So would we enter into some kind of our purchase agreement scenario very likely to but it's all is dependent on the offer so then that's that's a potential model that could be used because we we've approached that we're trying to approach that model with a partner in the city who operate um it's a, a registered social landlord who are thinking along the same lines and all we're doing is putting um we're trying to develop an economy of scale here saying we're interested in a 400 kilowatt fuel cell they're interested in a 400 kilowatt fuel cell we want to service a, a large academic building. They want to service um, a large block of flats. Now, that's an, an immediate economy of scale. Now, if we do that within the recommendations of a greater Manchester-wide feasibility that says, look at all of these identified locations, all of a sudden, it becomes a lot cheaper anyway. But all of a sudden, if we all, all go down the same route of putting out and developing a new finance mechanism to pay for it, it gets cheaper anyway. It doesn't matter whether you, for us, it's about, you know, we're spending 170 million pounds on a new academic science and engineering building, 170, I can't remember the exact figure is. So if we can take something off the balance sheet, which is about energy, the energy part is so important because that's the bit and that will be responsible for a lot of the emissions that will come to the city. And now the collective view of everyone within the city, and we work through a, new, a series of these different challenge groups. So I set up this energy challenge group within Greater Manchester Combined Authority, and what we're effectively doing there is saying, this is the hydrogen fuel cell strategy bit. This is how Greater Manchester is trying to sort of solve the idea of decarbonisation, and it's through an energy transition we need to say, okay, let's look at the trends we have within the region. So we our hydrogen fuel cell specialist, Salford, our um, specialist in, in uh, the energy house, the uh, University of Manchester have got properties, but we've also got um, the expert opinion that if we then want to structure these into actual 
tangible projects, we've got the experts to back it up. So we won't fall down on projects or funding when it's released. That's our sort of piece, really. Our next stage is really to sit down with all of the stakeholders, say, okay, um, you're replacing 20, 30, I actually get it into those numbers, say you're due to replace 30 waste collection vehicles. Here's an opportunity of hydrogen fuel cell. This is how we constructed this into a project. Police one is another example. There's a, uh, the, uh, sorry. If somebody was to come, uh, John and I were up in, uh, in Glasgow last year where they had double-decker uh, hydrogen buses, and I think Liverpool and Dundee and various places have got So if somebody said, you know, we, we've got to be deep net zero by 2038, which isn't very yeah. far off, it's only 18 it's years now. If somebody says, right, we want 100, 100 buses next year, can the industry deliver those? Could you go to a company that could, could say, yes, we can deliver that order? Is that realistic? I'd say so, because if I'm looking at the drivetrain within these vehicles, you, you could retrofit, you know, these, the, the bus companies are existing bus companies. It's just the powertrain, they're changing. Now, that's quite doable based on what's happened in the UK. And there's a lot of fuel cell buses um, on that, I suppose, in, in the UK already, within London, within Birmingham, um, we even with Aberdeen and Glasgow. But if you look at globally, they're all, you know, the fuel cell and hydrogen joint undertaking is a program that has run for the last 10 plus years. And that's demonstrated that cities and regions can deploy these buses at scale. They've already come down in cost anyway. You know, there was there wasn't a double-decker hydrogen fuel cell bus four or five years ago. Now there is a double-decker hydrogen fuel cell bus. These buses don't change in size and scale. What they do is the powertrain, it sort of changes. And then you have organizations, UK organizations that are the systems integrators. So the organizations like our coal or energy are like very much involved in the Liverpool bus project. You know, they've, they've been doing what they've been doing for many, many years. And it's about then working with organizations like Right Bus or um, the bus companies, I'm not sorry, I'm not really that familiar with the bus companies, working with them to develop the powertrain. And then it's putting them into scale and we can do anything. You know, what, what is one thing, even in the current climate with the current crisis, that you can, if there's a big enough demand, you can do things quite quickly. Yeah, thinking of uh, today, today um, uh, the round four, the offshore leasing program has taken another step forward in that uh, even given the current situation, the Crown is still driving uh, round four forward, it's moving to ITT phase now. Some of the thoughts are that you've got um, a big uh, uh, opportunity, you've already got operational wind in uh, Liverpool Bay, some of the biggest turbines in the world. You've yeah. also got some uh, oil and gas fields about to be decommissioned out there. So thinking of some of your bigger picture yeah. thoughts, I mean, there's almost like an epic opportunity for the Northwest, perhaps a once in a generation opportunity to link together what you're doing, 25 researchers, multi-million yeah. pound research centre, central Manchester, oil and gas fields being decommissioned two or three years, round four in the background, also chemical industry, also other, other uh, potential elements uh, to this, and it's all happening here in, yeah. the, in the northwest of England. That's why we work with the cluster so so closely, and that's why we're a fundamental part of the cluster because all of those, you know, the Liverpool Bay fields, you know, you, you, you talk about carbon capture and storage, and you know, where is that's. If we look at today, the ideal solution, and if I had to say, you know, everyone always talks about this, we want to get to green hydrogen. We're not at green hydrogen. Ninety odd percent of the world's hydrogen today is not produced in a green way. But neither is the petrol, the diesel. You know, there's, there's different arguments for and against. If we're trying to develop, if we're serious about developing this up at scale, we've got to recognise that those large industrial projects are the ones that are going to push it forward first.
we'll get to green eventually. But what it will be almost be a mixture. So if city regions can operate in a green way, you know, if we ever get I can't see it myself, but if uh, planning walls ever get relaxed, we'll see the wind turbines being attached to uh, <laughs> in city centres and powering electrifiers. But anyway, but the like I say, the decommissioning fields, oil fields, are ideal, and they can store oh, years and years and years worth of the bad stuff, which you, know, you can sell off to different organisations. But then there's there's already organisations that produce tons and tons of hydrogen uh, already in the northwest. As a byproduct of their chemical process, the, you know the Inovin plant in Runcorn, um, all of those industries, those chemical industries, are kind of geared up and ready to do this. Quick question on on transition from fuel cell point of view. Um, you mentioned that fuel cells, to start with, might be running off natural gas rather than hydrogen, and then gradually transition. High temperature ones. Okay. So if I'm looking at to operate a fuel cell within a building environment. So if I'm looking at a PEM fuel cell, that's to run off. Hmm. That's your transport application. But if I'm looking to operate a fuel cell at high temperature within a building environment, that doesn't need hydrogen. That just does, you can run off natural gas. And can you, you like a, can you use any blend without having to adjust the fuel cell, or as you increase the blend, do you have to modify the fuel cell? There's only a couple of when we did our feasibility on this. There's um, not that many units globally that could. So Doosan, uh, Fuel Cell Energy Systems, they were kind of um, highlights was the ones that could do that. And it didn't matter whether you run them off natural gas today and then there is an eventual shift towards hydrogen because then that's the other side. These, If you install a large fuel cell of that scale today, it's got to be in the, on the ground for at least a minimum of 15 years. If we put a, a large boiler in, we're not going to change it 15 years. And then you don't want a costly shift towards yeah, that was that was the basis of my question. Really, is yes. is do you are you locking yourself in for certain blends, or can you transition easily? You can transition. No, you can transition. I mean, there will be some adjustments to be made, but not at the costly scale mm. where you think it's going to be. So it can work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. work together. Okay. Charlie, are you still alive? It's difficult. <laughs> I think we all agreed that, uh, remarkably, uh, from a Manchester base in a, in a state in Manchester, transitioning that, 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 that uh, you've taken a, a, an idea and it's, it's, it's chimed with the times. Uh, it's, uh, you've got it up, it's running, you've, I've visited, you can go on. It's in, it's in the good story of the Manchester university building, you've got 25 researchers They're testing some innovative solutions, including we're looking at uh, grapheme and uh, de 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 as we keep saying, hydrogen is not a cheap alternative, but I think the, there's a feeling that the, the northwest gas grid is creaking and it's going to be, it's a thing called Rio 2, so something's going to have to be uh, done on, on, on gas. We're already inventing hydrogen we, we're committed to decarbonisation, which isn't going to be cheap either. Um, but it would seem that, um, uh, that, that the Manchester Fuel Centre, uh, Fuel Centre Innovation Centre, is actually leading the charge. It's something of a trailblazer, not just in the region but uh, internationally. Uh, I think everybody. One of our podcasts is called "Why Is Everybody Talking About Hydrogen?" So uh, certainly, uh, it, it's, it's got a global, a global reach. And so, if, if, why can't the um, northwest of England? 
which, as you said, did start the Industrial Revolution, repeat the trick. Uh, yeah. I think I've heard it called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Yeah. It would be extraordinarily well placed to lead that, uh, lead that charge. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think for me, the, fun, the most important thing that we can do, all of us, is something that you guys are doing, is teaching people about it. I think the skills piece is probably yeah. looked at on, as a as a token gesture in many of these sort of infrastructure type projects. And for me, skills almost need yeah. to come first yeah. because there should never be a skill shortage. If you look at, if you look at Wikipedia, if you look at Wikipedia, and the first thing people will see is that Hindenburg was dramatic uh, pictures, and that's still yeah. a prevalent uh, uh, view. And I, I go to a lot of these uh, events, and people are talk, industry experts talk to each other, but that does need addressing. That people are you know, a little bit scared, and then uh, yeah, I completely agree. The so public engagement is so key here. It's so key the public engagement piece, and I think you know recognizing what we know now, what was known about the Hindenburg then. You know, Hindenburg. You all you hear all different viewpoints. You know the viewpoint I hear, and we talk about this one quite a lot, is that ship was painted in what is now known as rocket fuel as the ignition as a combustible fuel that's going to blow up. That's that would happen today. Never mind then. You won't paint something in rocket fuel if you're going to have ignition to it. Um, <laughs> so there's we've learned things along the way as we've sort of evolved over the years, and I think. We're doing this again, but I think, you know, teaching people is key here. So the courses that you guys are potentially going to offer, I think, are fundamental. You know, we, like you said, right, so we built a, a fuel cell lab on the fifth floor of a tower block. It took forever because we, the project kept getting stopped because there's so many safety zones, so many, it's probably over-engineered, but that's because it has to be because mm. we have a lot of footfall within the area um, and there are so many restrictions even within the, the hydrogen lab itself, it's got its own extracts, it's got its own, everything is, is gone to that. I mean, you can probably vent it to air, but we, it's not done to that scale. It's done to the scale where it's totally safe for anyone. Um, there's alarms all over the place. There's so many safety zones. But it's took a while. And I think it is the notion of Manchester being uh, developing a hydrogen and fuel cell lab where they're actually generating and storing hydrogen on the fifth floor of a tower block was probably unthinkable a couple of years ago, but we've done it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, part of the education piece, so uh, we talked about Hindenburg, but the flip side of that is the Apollo 11 moon landings, which were also done uh, with hydrogen. Now, it's a, yeah. it, it was a, it was a, a, a remarkable uh, success story that uh, it was only by yeah. watching 50 years after documentaries last year that uh, I even realised uh, that it's a shame that the Olympics are not going uh, to occur this, uh, this, this year for the, uh, for the wider picture as well. Well, I think that we're in these unprecedented times, aren't we? I mean, it's just a case of, you know, we'd, be, we'd probably having this conversation in person if it wasn't for the, the crisis when you're... But then, you know, what has this taught us? That we can use technology like, to mm. make our... Like, how many meetings do we all have that we don't actually need to be in the same room for? Like, this is not perfectly well. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, this change is coming on a whole heap of things. <laughs> yeah, the world's going to change in, in yeah. the sense that well, it already has changed. That this is this was a complete unthinkable thing to have been developed. But in a way, what you what you are seeing with the world from a um, you know from a climate perspective, things are healing. You know, when we're seeing rivers, you know, that are cleaning themselves up. You stop putting so much pollution in the air, things will clear up. I don't know. I'm not an expert in any in any of this. One. We're, what we are doing is we're seeing what's happening, and I think it's kind of nice to see. I think it's a it's it'll probably you know we have thought this even in January time, December time, 
we would get to this lockdown status. Mm. We never thought it. People's mindset and behaviour has changed so much. Look at how people have been reacting towards toilet rolls. <laughs> 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 I mean, Jesus, there's going to be that, that much of a crisis. <laughs> well, it's, it's to get rid of all that pasta they've also <laughs> stockpiled at the same time. I've got to stir it. I'm going to stick them in the post, if you will. When this all does calm down, I'd love for you both to come back. I know how you've been before, but please do come and I'd love yeah. to introduce you to our sort of team. And yeah, yeah. It would make a very interesting podcast, wouldn't it, if we were actually to walk around and perhaps do a chinwag from there. I think that would be a very, very interesting to our listeners because our listeners do have a global reach and not everybody can get to Manchester, even the UK, certainly yeah. not now. Uh, but I think there'd be one a lot thing, of global interest in that. One thing we are doing is we're putting together a MOOC. We got, we got awarded some other funding, which was, it's like an, a, a short two-week course which can be attended by everyone and we're developing the MOOC and it, it but the MOOC is around everything kind of it summarizes a bit of our discussion actually because it says you know what role does hydrogen fuel cells have to play it isn't around we call it the challenge of cleaning growth and cleaner cities um the MOOC will be sort of available probably by September because we're developing the course but we'd love you to be involved in the development of it because what we're doing is saying all right what does targets like 2038 mean what role will hydrogen fuel cells play? How do buzzwords like Industry 4 and uh, Circular Economy play a role within decarbonisation? They have, clearly have a role to play. And then you'll hear from the experts, sort of the academic, the industry the guys, and then it's about what is people's takeaway from that? So if one person who's attending the course suddenly goes away and changes their mindset, it's almost You've done the job, mm. but then it's about pointing them in the right direction. So if they want to develop their skills further by coming to university and doing a postgraduate course or an undergraduate course, which is relevant, or they want to go to industry through apprenticeship, it's relevant, or they want to attend your courses, relevant. That's all it's about. It's about just pointing. I mean, these books are twenty-minute-ish course. It's not even a course. It's just more of an information. I think the public information piece is key here. Mm. Yeah, both, well, both public and within industry, uh, particularly yeah. sectors that aren't in in it at the moment, but are looking in from the outside. Um, a lot of the stuff, yeah. certainly a lot of stuff I do, I end up talking to investors and finance people who, who aren't technical people. They're not. They're looking in from the outside. They want to understand the risks. They want to understand the opportunities and so on. So yeah. So just having a good solid grounding in what some of the numbers are and what some of the um, the issues are is, is key. We're definitely going to continue this conversation because I enjoyed this, and I think there's a lot more that we could do. But again, when you um, once this all settles down, is come in and we'll we'll take you through it, and then we'll um, you know we want to get you involved in the development of what we're doing as well on the wider skills piece. Yeah, it was very kind. It was very kind, Emma. So, no, no, is anything pressing that people wish to uh, to say? I think we've had a, a very thorough discussion. On, yeah, no, yeah, I think we've been great. On where we are, it's a hydrogen, a very exciting uh, industry to be in at the moment. Hopefully, that's conveyed itself. We've not necessarily had the best technical quality of recording today, so please bear no. with us, uh, listeners. Today, there are a couple of wobbles on the line. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. that we can uh, make ourselves. I think we got the meaning. Like to thank you, John and I, for, uh, for it was a very, very informative session. So, thanks very much indeed for taking part oh, in today's uh, chin, uh, chin wag. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Have enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.